0: All right, we'll turn with me to 1 Samuel. We'll be looking at chapters 5 through 7. This is the days of the judges. Everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. And what we've seen so far in the book of Samuel is that God had a plan to raise up a man. But the man was first a little baby boy named Samuel. And um, through the circumstances of, of finding it difficult to become pregnant, Hannah came to the place where she said, Lord... If you'll give me a child, I will give him back to you. And she did that. She brought him to the house of the Lord where Eli, the high priest, was looking over things. And he had his sons, they're Hophni and Phinehas, bad guys, corrupt guys, vile guys. Um, terrible, terrible men of God. I mean, not, they weren't men of God. They were terrible, terrible men representing the work of the Lord. And um, so the Lord ends up dealing with them. But when, uh, when they go out to battle against the Philistines, and as they go out to battle, they're losing. And so they decide, we know what we need to do. Uh, we need to get the Ark of the Covenant. Because the Ark of the Covenant led us through our, our forefathers through the wilderness. The Ark of the Covenant represents the Lord. And so we need His presence in the camp. And we'll go out and we can, we can be victorious then. Um, the, the problem is is that their hearts were a million miles away from God. They were doing whatever they wanted. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. There was no submission to the lordship of Yahweh. It just was um, a lucky, lucky charm. It was you know a big lucky box that hopefully if we bring into the, our camp, then it'll give us the victory. We don't want to change or anything like that, but maybe this will help. Well, it turns out to be a disaster. They again fall in defeat. The Ark of the Covenant is captured. Word comes back to Eli, who was in his late 90s. That the Ark of the Covenant and his two sons had been had died, um, he falls off of a chair um, and dies. Um, I forget which of the sons it was, uh, Hophni or Phineas. But their wife was pregnant. When she found out, she went into labor and. Had a child, named him Ichabod, and I mean, it, which means the glory of the Lord has departed. Thinking of the covenant, the ark of the covenant that had um, left. So that's where we kind of left the story at the end of chapter four. And so uh, tonight we're going to read of how that captured ark is going to come back by the hand of the Philistines, in a very uh, uh, they're going to God's going to persuade them that they don't want to keep it. <laughs> Um, and so they're going to say yes. But one thing that we'll, we'll look at is that these Egyptians, as they began, I mean, uh, Philistines, as they begin to suffer plagues in their, their uh, numbers, they remember that what happened to the Egyptians, the gods of the Egyptians. This is some 400 years later. So we're, I think we're right around, and of course when you begin to date, it can always go a couple of years, but we're right around 1104 B.C., And the Battle of Aphek when um, the ark was captured. So they came into the land in 1446. They wandered the wilderness for 40 years. So, you know, I mean, 1406, you know, 1446. So, you know, there's hundreds of years have passed, and yet in the minds of some pagans, they still remember what God did down in Egypt. That's pretty, that's kind of amazing, isn't it? So it shows you that this was a. It was a very well-known event. So let's go ahead and begin reading there in chapter 5 of 1 Samuel. And for this chapter, we're just going to see our God is greater. Our God is greater. Then the Philistines took the ark of God brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the Ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the earth before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. So the Ark of the Covenant gets captured. Well, maybe there's really nothing significant about God after all. But it's one thing for the Lord to not be manipulated and used by the Israelites as some kind of spiritual good luck charm. That's another thing for the gods to mock him. Another thing for people to mock him. And so that's not going to happen. He was not going to be um, manipulated by the Israelites, nor was he going to be mocked by the Philistines. And so he falls down. Now it happens again the next morning. And we read the head of, the, of Dagon and both, uh, the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon, Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So you can kind of you know, have the scene here. You have the Ark of the Covenant and then you have this fish god. He was uh, from the torso up. He was a man. From the torso down, he looked like a a fish with a bent tail. Um, And so this was the God. And he is laid out. He is laid out uh, prostrate before him in the sense of worshiping. And then the next time it happens, the head comes off and the hands come off, which is, I think, symbolic of he can't think and he can't do anything. He has no wisdom for you. And he has no help to offer you. And so this is the scene that is happening. Verse 6. But the hand of the Lord was heavy. Uh, You know, probably a little play on words here, right? The, The hands of their God got knocked off. But the hands of Yahweh, they're heavy. Heavy is the Hebrew word kabod, which is where we get the word glory from. Right? So there's a heaviness um, which is an interesting word to think about. It, that glory is heavy, and at first you're like, "I don't get it." But wait a minute, you do get it. Have you ever had those moments where you have really sensed the presence of the Lord? You maybe you've turned to somebody and said, "Man, this was so heavy tonight. It's weighty. It's full of substance and meaning." And so, um, of course, it's you know sometimes it'll be translated glory. Sometimes it's gonna be translated you know in another manner. But um, Here here we're reading, But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod. And he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us and Dagon our God, our poor little God. um, He's not good to us or our God. You think they might want to change gods. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, how about a moment of awakening here? It's like, our God just got defeated. Our God was worshiping before the Ark of the Covenant, which represented where the presence of God, would be above the cherubim there. So, nope, that's, that's not going to have their answers. We just got to change circumstances and get this guy out of here. Get this, this box out of here. Therefore, they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said... What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of God of Israel away. So it was, after they had carried it away, that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Now, we're going to find here in a chapter that when they send, they're going to send this back, and they're going to send an offering back, um, and they're going to send offerings made of gold, and they're going to send well, it's going to be five golden tumors, and it's going to be five golden rats that they send back. So the question is um, and you know, some of you may have the translation that you know, rather than tumors, you may have the translation of hemorrhoids, um, is what they were struck with. And that, that's, certainly, that's certainly possible. And as I was looking up at, you know, some of the, you know, the word studies, that was, that was, that was a possibility. Um, but it, it's not, it could be just a tumor as well. And so the thing to keep in mind is, well, maybe it was hemorrhoids. And I kind of like that because I think it's funny. But um, <laughs> it's like, yeah, you want to do what with me? Okay, how about that? Try that on for size. How do you feel now? But um, You know, so uh, that's kind of, that's a little humorous to me. But, you know, uh, another suggestion, and I don't think you're going to solve it tonight, but another suggestion is, well, here it is. They're along the coast. You have ships coming in. You have a port city. You have this, these rats that are uh, infesting the land. and, And so maybe there's kind of a bubonic plague that's, but we don't know. Whatever it was, they didn't want to keep the Ark of the Lord around verse 10 therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron so so it was as the ark of God came to Ekron the Ekronites cried out saying they have brought the ark of God of Israel to us to kill us and our people so they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said send away the ark of God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so it does not kill us and our people For there was a deadly destruction throughout the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. So um, nobody wants this. And they're not wanting to send it back, obviously, right? Because you've captured uh, the prized possession of your enemy. So to send it back, it's not a good look. But they're going to send it back because nobody wants it. And they are feeling the weight and the, the hand of the Lord against them. So that's, that's how it turned out when they got this. They thought they could just put it there as a trophy um, inside their temple. And the Lord's like, I'm not going to do that. And nor am I going to be in your land. I'm not going to do that. So chapter 6, we see that the ark returns, but not Israel. So Israel's left, right? They've, they've fallen away from the Lord. They're worshiping the, the you know, Baal and the Asherah. So we'll read that in just a moment here. So they've, 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 they've left the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant was captured. But the Ark's going to come back, but Israel's not going to come back quite yet. But we will read of them coming back. So we pick up there in chapter 6, verse 1. And now the Ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners saying, what shall we do with the ark of Yahweh? What should we do with Yahweh? and This this, um, artifact, this uh, spiritual piece of furniture that's in their temple. What should we do with this? And so, should we send it to its place, they asked. What should we do? How should we send it away? They said, verse three, if you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means, return it to him with the trespass offering. Then you, sh- then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then they said, What is the trespass offering? We shall return to him. They don't have the law of Moses, and they're not inquiring about it either. So their answer was, Well, let's send them five golden tumors and five golden rats. According to the number of the lords of the Philistines, so it was like for each one of the lords. Here is an offering of repentance, and we give you these these golden images. And so this is what <laughs> this is what they're doing. Um, Therefore, you shall uh, make golden images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory uh, to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods, and from your land. Verse 6, why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? So again, you know, somewhere just under 400 years from the, the time in which these events happened in the Exodus. And the 10 plagues were all an attack against the 10 gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And so it was not just a humbling of the Egyptians and Pharaoh through um, difficult circumstances and unpleasant circumstances. It was also saying the gods you worship are all, they're all loathsome to you. They all are bringing this upon you. And it just showed the power in the hand of God. And here they are, 400 years later, n- remembering this. He says, when he did mighty things among them, did they not let the people go? That they might depart. Now, therefore, make a new cart, and take two milk cows which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart, and take their calves home away from them. There is so much wrong with that. There is so much wrong with that. Um, you know, um, both like in a practical sense, and in a, in a spiritual sense. How was the ark of the covenant supposed to be transported? Yeah, remember, you saw that image just a few minutes ago. There are poles that it's supposed to go upon the shoulders of the priest, and they were to carry it. But, well, again, they don't have the law, so they're going to make a cart. Um, and then they're going to um, hook it up to um, milk cows that have calves. Take the calves away, and these milk cows have never been yoked before. You know, what are they thinking? Well, we're going to find out what they're thinking. Um, verse eight. Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart, and put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. Then send it away, and watch. If it goes up the road to its own territory, to Bashshamish, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we will know this is not his hand that struck us. It happened by chance. So they were doing everything they could to make certain that this wouldn't work out. Do you see what they're doing? It's like, well, we're not, we're not positive here that this was, you know, the hand of Yahweh against us. It seems like it. And we'll, we're willing to do this. But let's make it so difficult that, you know, we're not going to do this. So, you know, again, uh, untested animals um, hooked to a cart. Um, yeah, I remember I had, a, when I had a horse growing up, and I, I decided one day, I, was, I experimented with the horse. I did all kinds of things, and, and I, I often paid for it. And, um, and so I decided I was going to, I forget exactly what I de- wanted to hook up to my horse to see if she would pull it. Well, let me tell you, she pulled it really fast in a big circle, and everything went flying, and it was, a, it, it was lucky she did not hurt herself and that I didn't die, Animals don't just do this, okay? Especially if you have um, cows who just had their calves taken away from them. Going to a place that they've never gone to before. But if that happens, then we know that God has his hand against us. So that's, that's what they do. So let's read on. Verse 10. Then the men did so. They took two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and the images of their tumors. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went, and did not not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. They've got GPS, right? (laughs) The, The Lord is positioning them and it is directing them right to where they are going. They're not moving off course one little bit. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley and they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. So everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And in the time that they were doing what was right in their own eyes, they did call for the ark to come into their camp. And so they thought, well, this is going to help us. Now it gets stolen and there's great grief, right? It gets captured and there's great grief among the Israelites. And now it's coming back and there's great joy. So this is the interesting thing. You know, on the one hand, they had a kind of a warm spot in their heart to... The worship in Shiloh, they they had a you know they had a you know a, a tradition of worshiping, and it was in their land that this would happen. And so it wasn't like they were anti-ark. It wasn't like they were anti-worship um, at Shiloh um, directly, indirectly. It definitely was, um, but they were just cap- their hearts were captured for other things. But they were willing to give lip service. Remember when Jeroboam set up the worship of calves um, up north in the northern part, up in, uh, in Dan. And um, what, what did he call that calf? Does anybody remember what he called that calf? Yahweh. This, this calf represents Yahweh. No, it's completely pagan, and he picked it up when he was down in Egypt and brought it back. When um, uh, Aaron uh, made the, the golden calf did he say this is a brand new God for you? He didn't say that, did he? He says, This is the God that led you out. So you have this kind of mixing of, of uh, pagan thought with some truth. And this is what you, I think this is what we see in the response here is, oh, they're glad to see it, but they're about to make a big mistake. I mean, they're like a Raiders of the Lost Ark type of mistake, okay? Um, and it's, it's not going to be good what, what, what happens. But they're, they're rejoicing. And they're like, okay, you know, this is good that it's coming back. But we don't see repentance here. We just see that they're joyful. It's kind of like some people like, oh, that, that's nice. You know, this Bible means a lot to me. This was my grandmother's Bible. What does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? So verse 14, then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there. So they split the wood of the uh, the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was in it. So that's, that's a good move there. The Levites are involved. In which there were articles of gold and put them on a large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So, then, so when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day saying, that was the Lord who punished us. So let's pull up a map here and um, let's take a look at this. So um, what you have is up at the top, um, you have Aphek where the battle took place and then it comes down to Ashdod. They don't want it. The they are like, no, give it to the, you know to, to Gath. Gath gets it, gives it to the Ek- Ekronites. They're like, get this thing out of here, and then the cows take it to Beth Shemesh, and of course, um, to the far uh, top right, you have Shiloh, which is where it came from. Um, if you keep going to the uh, kind of going uh, north from Beth Shemesh, you'll see Kiriath-Jerim, which is this is where it's going to end up in just a couple of minutes, and then from there. Um, it's going to end up in Jerusalem where eventually it'll be put in the temple that Solomon will build. So that's kind of the, the, the following what happened with the ark. This next um, slide is an aerial picture of um, uh, Tel Beth Shemesh. So this is the ruins of this place. So do I have a. I think I have a. I was playing with this the other day and making people look at red dots, so I couldn't find it. So, um, so right here you can see these runes. And right about there, somewhere in this region, um, I'm going to point something out. So this is, that's where the, the, the Beshemesh was. And this was the wheat. It's down there in the valley that was being talked about. Um, we read something as we were going through um, that there was a large stone that was in the field. And um, what they did with this, they ended up putting the Ark of the Covenant on that really large stone. Verse 13 talks about that. So an interesting, I'm certainly not trying to communicate this as biblical certainty. I'm, I'm, I'm presenting this as archaeological curiosity. How about that? Just to make certain nobody gets puts too much um, you know, weight in this. But in 2019, they were excavating here at Beth Shemesh. And, um, and, and by the way, it looks just like that to this day. Um, it's the same thing they've, you know they've, they've done a little bit more excavation than that but it's, it's still still there so in 2019 when they're excavating they found this one room that's kind of you know going down to that region that i kind of pointed out of this little city and in this one room they found this really large stone and as they measured the stone they found out that the stone was large enough to put the Ark of the Covenant on. And so they, you look at the measurements of that. And they're like, you know, what the Ark of the Covenant is. And they then measured this stone. And this is, this is a room that they dug out. And they put it there. And so the suggestion or the curiosity is, is this the stone? This um, stone um, is not fallen down. It's set up like that. And it is also, uh, they have this is a rare find in all the archeological discoveries. They don't just find stones like this. So this is unique. Um, you can imagine that this would not be the thing you would want to just haul around from location to location. However, the text says that it was in the Valley or it was down in the Valley though, or where it was found. And that's where they placed it. Now they're only going to hold on to this ark for just a short amount of time. So, um, you know, the question is, well, you know, it's in a room, so therefore that can't be the stone. And But here's the thought. Maybe it is the stone that used to be in the valley. And after the ark left, somewhere in the hundreds of years later, they came and they're like, that stone would work really good in this. And this little room, they've, they've done um, excavation here, and they've done that. They found uh, that there was sacrifices that were happening in here. Now, don't think... That it was, the, uh, it was Joshua that was doing it. I just think sometime later. And, and this ends up being become a desecrated place. So you cannot say with biblical certainty. But um, it is possible that this is the very stone. And um, so I love when we go to Israel to go to Beth Shemesh. Because at the time that we go, there's wheat growing in the field. And you can just stand right there and you can just look out and say, "All right, you know, it would have come from Ekron is right over there, and they would have just come right up this way. They were out in the field doing this, and we're standing up in the ancient little village there. And um, it's hard to find that stone, but the last time I was there, um, it was one of my requests of our guide, of like, "I want to see the stone. I want to go, I want to look at this, I want to see it." And so um, yeah, I don't know. it's interesting. Um, but, you know, these are the type of details that would not surprise me um, to find. I mean, it's a large stone. It's in the location. Who's going to be hauling this thing all around town? You know what I'm saying? So maybe they did move from the valley up to this little house. But. So interesting to consider, but it only stays there for just a little while. Um, it's not going to stay um, very long at all. Let's pick up reading there in verse 17, chapter 6, verse 17. And these are the gold tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden rats, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as a large stone of Abel, on which they set the ark of the Lord which stone remains to this day, in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked into the ark of the Lord. Now the Levites were there. They knew better. The Levites knew enough that we're the ones that have to handle this. And so they, they, this, they end up looking in. And what we read here is, depending on your translation, you're either going to read, he struck... 50,070 men, or I know if you have an ESV, it's going to say he struck 70 men um, of the people. And the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. So they were forbidden from touching the ark. They were, it was not for their curiosity's sake that they could begin to mess around. So they rejoiced to see it, but you can see they have no fear of the Lord. They have no reverence for him or what he has said and how that it should be handled. It's a lack of reverence that was being lived out every day in their life as they worshipped these others. So how do we handle the 70 men versus the 50,070 men? That is a 50,000 you know, number difference. So there are, the majority of the manuscripts have 50,070. There are Other, there are not just a few, but there's a few uh, of the newer translations that have seventy, and so some people will opt for seventy, some will opt for fifty thousand and seventy. So, if how do we explain this? Well, there's there's a scribal error somewhere. Okay, one they can't both be right. One of them is, is right, and you can imagine. Um, it would be easy to make that kind of error to go from fifty thousand seventy. I mean, not if you're being conscious, but if it's the end of the day and you're just looking and it all begins to blur and you're, scri- you're scribing you're writing down that happened. So, so what are we to think of this? Well, here's the thing that's interesting, and it's so you have some Hebrew, Hebrew manuscripts and the Septuagint. Um, um, have 50,070. So you have some that have that, but the Septuagint and other Hebrew manuscripts have 50,070. But look at the last two words of verse 19. Great slaughter. Now, the, the, the Hebrew word here is, I'm sure I'm not going to pronounce it right, but gadol. And, and the word emphasizes importance, size significance of something. Well, if it was 70, you could say, well, the hand of the Lord was against them, and it was a significant slaughter because of what they had done. Uh, Another um, uh, lexicon describes it this way. Remarkable or out of the ordinary in degree, magnitude or effect. So, I mean, if you read 70... And great slaughter. I mean, you don't, that doesn't seem to fit. Now, if it's a small little village, then of course you you could see it that way. But, um, yeah, I I think that there's probably some historical things we don't yet know about Beth Shemesh. And maybe the surrounding region. And what kind of population might have been there. You know, and, you know, who knows. Um, Yeah, you, you you just don't know exactly what happened on that day. Um, you know, yeah, maybe they all invited friends and they came from all over Israel um, and they all got struck there in Beth Shemesh. So I think there are some, uh, some possibilities, but just, just to understand that if you, you hear me read it and you see, you know, I say 50,070 and yours says 70, well, you know, there's some scribal errors that um, are worked out, and this is one where you see that. Um, does this impact? the reliability of your, your Bible. Listen, there is not a point of doctrine that is um, in dispute. Um, there is not a, a command for living a certain way that is in question in the manuscripts. So we don't have the originals. We have manuscripts. Manuscripts are the copy of the originals. But the more copies you, you are able to you know pull together, the easier it is to figure out exactly what it was to me, reading this, and i 'm no Hebrew scholar, so i 'm not going to wade deep into this, but i 'm just going to read this um, this is a quote from um, Lexham Bible Reference series, and this is what it says it says, "Some Hebrew manuscripts have seventy men, but the Septuagint and other Hebrew manuscripts have fifty thousand and seventy men, an unusually large number so I mean, even the fact that it made it into another translation, like the Septuagint. The Greek is the a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament scripture. So, um, yeah. Something to think. But you have a reliable Bible. There are these matters sometimes where you may wonder, is it 50,000 or is it 50,070? Um, you have two different sets of manuscripts that are saying different things. So, you know, we work through those. And at the end of the day, this does not affect any of us. It affected... Either 70 or 50,070. But it doesn't affect us, right? Let's keep on going here. Uh, verse 20. And the men of Beth said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? That's a good question. That's a really good question. Who can stand before him? Well, you could have if you would have obeyed him. <laughs> you could have. If you'll hear what he has to say, and you will fear him and you will obey him. You could have stood before him. You could have received, um, been been a part of that worship. And to whom shall it go from us? I mean, isn't this interesting? Nobody, we're on our sixth town here. Nobody wants the Ark of the Covenant. It's like, get this thing out of here. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have brought back the Ark of the Lord. We think you guys should have it. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, come down and take it up with you. Go get this. Take this up into the mountains. Get it out of, the, out of our area. And so they recognized that they had acted foolishly with the Holy God. And they wanted to be relocated. That's not really the problem, is it? The problem is not the location. The problem goes way back to when it first left Shiloh, which goes back before that with how Israel was living, as they did in the days of the judges, doing what was right in their own eyes. That's the real problem. Um, So they're not not seeing what needs to be done. They're just like, I just got to get this thing. We got to get this thing out of here. Israel was not taking seriously God in their midst, both in the way in which they were living, and in this account, in the way in which they were handling the ark. They didn't take him serious. Oh, come on, it's just a little, I mean, let's just look in it. I don't know, man, I wouldn't do that. I mean, it's only Levites supposed to do that and they're supposed to carry it. They're not supposed to touch it. Oh, what's the big deal? Let's look in it and boom. 50,070 men end up being struck dead. I think there are many today who seem to forget that God is a holy God. And that we must regard him as holy. In Leviticus 10.3, in a very similar type of a, an account, um, Moses' sons, um, they come before the Lord to worship him, and they bring and offer up profane fire, and they are struck dead. And they die. The fire that they were, had in their censers came out and just burned them up. And um, they, it says they offered profane fire. Um, what exactly was the profane fire? Well, it's interesting. Read, read Levit- Leviticus 10 on your own. But one thing that the Lord ends up instructing, he says, hey, when you come before me, don't come before me drunk. So it might be that these... Um, uh, priests were coming before the Lord intoxicated, having had strong drink and and not reverencing the Lord. But so but here's the, here's the, the principle of the matter. This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people I must be glorified. So Aaron, Dad, holds his peace. He doesn't mourn. He's done. Because his sons had rebelled and not feared God, and his love and reverence for God was greater than his love for his kids, and so he hears what the Lord says. I must regard the Lord was just in what He did, but this is the thing: we must regard Him as holy. You know, think of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, you know, okay, so they sold their land for fifty thousand dollars. And they came and they told Peter, we sold our land for $35,000 and we're giving every single penny to you. And the Holy Spirit says to Peter, he's lying. He's lying. And he says, why are you lying? You're going to die. And he died right there. Boom. And, and they went and buried him. And his wife came back. He says, hey, i got a question for you. Did you really sell your land for 35000 35000 you got every single penny. Boom. Well, he actually gives a little announcement for her. He says, well... Your husband lied and he's dead and you're about to die too. And she dies. I mean, think about this. How big of a sin was that? I don't mean by God. God told us how big of a sin it was. This was God saying, I don't want hypocrisy in my church. I don't want that. Right at the beginning, I don't want that. And what God does at significant times in history, I'm not going to say limited to these moments, but you can find moments when there's a beginning of a new era or something is changing over. Like Nadab and Abihu at the beginning of the the worship of the Lord in the tabernacle, they bring the profane fire. Or Achan, when they're about to go into the promised land, right? Another event that's kind of a new era. Or, um, and I'm probably missing some. And then you have this moment here. And this is about to be, this is an opportunity for change. I don't know how much I put this into a new era, but there's a lot that's gone on that's unique and different. And they end up making the same mistake. We'll, we'll see it again um, in the coming chapters. And then you can keep on going through it, And then we see it again with Ananias and Sapphira. And so, like, of all the sins that exist in the church, is the biggest sin that somebody held back 15000 but gave $35,000? These are just numbers I'm making up, by the way. Just getting the idea. I mean, it's like, like how big of a sin is that really to us? Well, I mean, it was $35,000 they gave. You know, I mean, it was a big offering, right? I mean, it was something. I mean, that's pretty generous. And they could have just said, hey, we sold the land and we prayed about it. and We feel like we should give... A good portion of this to, to the ministry. There would have been no, no issue. The issue was they were pretending to be something they were not. And so we don't have the Nadab and Abihus and the Beth Shemesh and the Ananias Sapphira's and the Akins and you know, we don't have these events happening all the time. But how true do you think Leviticus 10:3 is right now? Right now, that we must regard him as holy, that he should be glorified in the midst of all the people. Is that any less true today because somebody didn't die than it was on the day in which it was stated when somebody? No, it's completely as true today. And so, may there be a sobriety that we all feel to look through our, uh, you know, examine our hearts and see if there be any wicked or evil way. Lord, show us that there's something. We need to be living our Christianity out with sobriety. Giving God glory. Giving him the honor that he is due. Chapter 7. Verse 1. And here we're going to see Israel returns and God restores. So the ark has come back. Israel continues their downward slide in chapter 6. But in chapter 7, Israel is going to return to the Lord and God is going to restore. Then the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the Ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the Ark of the Lord. So it was that the Ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim a long time. It was there 20 years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So we're reading 20 years later. But actuality, this is going to be in this location for 100 years. So again, the Battle of Aphek, um, where the Ark was captured, Um, 1104 BC, some seven months and change later, it's here at the house of Abinadab. And then um, when, so 1104, did I say 1104 or 1004? 1104 BC is when it was captured. And then 1003 BC is when um, it's going to make it into Jerusalem by the hand of David. So it's going to be there for like a very, very long time. And um, when David comes to bring this in, and we'll see this in just a you know in a bit here, but uh, not tonight. But um, when David comes to bring the ark in, into Jerusalem, does anybody know how he transports it? How does he transport it? He puts it on a cart. Where in the world did you get that dumb idea? From the Philistines. He got it from the Philistines. That's how the Philistines brought it. The Philistines brought it to Beth Shemesh. Well, okay, then we're going to bring it into Jerusalem. And it's, it's super hilly and up and down through those mountains from, from you know, Kiriath-Jerim um, into Jerusalem. I mean, this is no easy track. So there's a practicality to it. Well, and we've seen the world do it, and it's, it's efficient, you know. But, you know, God is not so much interested in efficiency as he is interested in effectiveness. And the only way you can be effective in the kingdom of God is to obey his word. And they disregard the word. And we, we know that they have it on the cart. It begins to rock. One guy reaches out his hand to try and steady it. And boom, he gets zapped and dies right there. And so it, it's, it's quite a story. But we must be careful that we do not look to the world and their methods to figure out how to do ministry. We don't, you know, the world's out there. So, you know, here's the interesting thing, though. But there's, you know, say, well, yeah, it's out there. But, you know, you've got a projector. That's, you know, really. Well, wait a minute. Technology versus theology. Okay, let's, I think there's, we got to draw a distinction here between those two. So if you're you're using technology to help find, but if you're using technology to um, do the work of the Lord, and that's how you're going to accomplish things, then there's a problem. And so this is the mistake that David makes. We've got to be so careful that we don't use carnal means and methods to do the work of the Lord. This is what Jesus said. Those things which are highly esteemed among men are what? An abomination in the sight of the Lord. Wow. So something for us to to remember. But let's keep on moving. We're almost uh, through this here. Verse 3. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel. So this is some 20 years after it makes it to the house of Abinadab. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherahs from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the bells and the Asherahs, and serve the Lord only. They became dedicated to worship God only. And Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out. Symbolic of the cleansing um, and the repentance and the cleansing the Lord's giving them. And They poured it out before the Lord, and they fasted that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. That's it. We have sinned against the Lord. You know, so often when there's a prayer of repentance, it's like, Lord, I've sinned against you. But you know, that woman that you gave me. Lord, I I know what I did was wrong, but that boss is so unrighteous. And I don't think I would have ever said what I said had he not pushed me or she pushed me like they did. Lord, I, you know, and we, we don't just like say, I've sinned against you. And the end of story. We are so quick to bring in some other reason and justification. But here is genuine repentance. They had been worshiping the other gods, they're done with the other gods. God, Yahweh, is a jealous God, and He is not willing to accept spiritual immorality from His bride. He calls them to abandon the pursuits. And have a total devotion to the Lord with all your hearts. And He tells them to prepare their hearts by repenting and leaving these things alone. And then they make that confession: repentance, prepare your heart and confess. This is if you're in a place where you're far from the Lord, this is what you got to do tonight. You've got you have to repent. You gotta turn around. You gotta be done with the things that you're holding on to. You may not have a, a bale and an asherah set up in your house. I doubt that you do. But there's probably something else that's just as equally as idolatrous in your heart. And remember our study. You are the, we are the temple of God. And individually, we are the temple of the Lord. I mean, would any of you be bothered if you walked into this house of the Lord tonight and you would have seen, you know, a big Buddha out there? Or, you know... You know, one of the many gods from India? I mean, would this, I say yes, it would have bothered me. I hope, I hope some of you would have gone, you know, <laughs> began to hack it to pieces, right? I mean, w- w- what in the world is this going on? Find Troy, you know, what is happening? And yeah, there, there would be craziness if that was the case. But what about in our heart? If it's set up there, is, it, is that any less of a deal? It's a big deal. And so we need to repent. Now, verse 8. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, i ah, sorry, verse 7. Now, when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So again, we're, we're 20 years from the last battle, at least as it's recorded here. So Israel finally gets it right. And the first thing that happens is they get attacked. Does that sound like any of your lives? Does that that sound like, you know what, in 2024, we are going to set this aside and that aside, and we're going to begin to do this thing, and we're going to begin to do this, and we're going to begin to do that for the Lord. We feel, let the Lord do it, and then you start out to do that, and everything that can possibly go wrong and attack you in that vision that God has given for your life begins to be threatened. Yeah, I mean, listen, the Philistines are not attacking them because they repented. Satan is attacking them because they've repented and he's using the unwitting Philistines who are jealous for their territory. They don't know that's why they're doing it. There's they're unwitting pawns in his hands. And the, the same is true for some of the things that, that maybe you'll endure and, and go through. So don't be surprised when you step out and all hell literally breaks loose on you. And there's just like everything that ever since I decided to serve the Lord, ever since I've decided to read my Bible, ever since I decided to break up or do that, everything's gone crazy. Yeah, that's what happens when you follow the Lord. And, and, you know, there will be those seasons of warfare. Verse 8, so the children of Israel said to Samuel, now, of course, he's grown, right? We're 20 years later. Do not cease desperation. Do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. Man, just like it, it just like a thunderclap of all thunderclaps, and it just, you know, their brainwaves went flat, right? They didn't know what to do. It just, they were, they were rendered helpless. And um, if the Israel said, there's no way we'll be able to do that. Well, if I confuse them, you can. And isn't that the way the Lord works? It's like, there's no way this can happen. Or it's like, I've got ways. I've got ways. I can do some pretty interesting things. Don't you worry about it. You go and do what I've told you to do. And the men, verse 11, of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as Bethkar. First Samuel twelve twenty three says, Moreover, as for me, and Samuel speaking, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Every leader, every spiritual leader, every pastor, every parent should be the kind of intercessor for those that they're leading that Samuel was. Samuel saw a lack of intercession as a sin. Prayerlessness to him was a sinful thing. What a model, what an example. Boy, you put him in in contrast to the other judges we've read about, I mean, he is the standout judge, um, a godly man. So the Lord answers him, gives him victory. Verse 12, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer, saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and they did not come anymore into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Then the cities of the Philistines, excuse me, then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath, and Israel recovered its territories from the hands of the Philistines, and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. You know, in sin, they lost land. But in repentance and worship of the Lord, they recovered that which was lost. This is the grace of the Lord. The Lord answers with victory, but he gives them peace and recovery. That which they used to have, they got back. I have a sense that there might be somebody here tonight who's saying, I remember what I used to have with the Lord. I will never get that back. Really? Are you sure about that? Because this is what your Bible says. It's Joel chapter 2, verses 23-26. through 26. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floors shall be full of wheat. Of course, that's the the equation. Rain equals harvest. And the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. They had, there was famine in the land. They were dry. There was uh, locust plagues. Things caught on fire. And they were judged for that. But now here the Lord says, I'm going to send rain upon you. Verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. If you will come to the Lord tonight, no matter how far you've strayed, no matter how far you have gone into the Baal and the Ashras, worshiping other gods, pleasing yourself, if you will confess and say, Lord, I have sinned against you, he will restore you. You will recover that which has been lost. He will deal with you wondrously. Now, if you don't, well, we just read... Three chapters of what happens when you don't. And that's not what you want. But you come to the Lord. And the enemy would love for you to think that if you come, he's done with you. But that's not what the word says. Last two verses. Three verses. Verse 15. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. So he was a judge. And he went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and judged Israel in those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there, There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So that was his hometown. What a different man he was than Eli and some of those other judges. Eli was unfaithful. Samuel was faithful. And as it says to us, and I think it was to Archippus, actually, yeah, to Archippus is told to fulfill his ministry, but in Corinthians it says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. You are a steward of the things the kingdom the gospel message the spiritual gift that you've been given you're a steward of that and it is required by your maker that you be faithful that I be faithful and so may we be faithful God is greater than all other gods right and and they all these other gods they fall down they bow down and the world is going to melt with a fervent heat and all these things that we've esteemed are going to bow down before the Lord. The Word makes it clear we must reverence the Lord. And we can't live in sin and think that it does not impact. We also see that God is gracious and when we return, we recover. He helps us to, to restore us. And we shouldn't be surprised by spiritual warfare that we endure when we begin to follow the Lord and be faithful. Fulfill the work the Lord has given you to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and your truth. Lord, there's so much for us to glean. There's so much to us, for us to learn from here. Such easy application into our lives. And so Lord, we want to take this time to respond to you. We want to lay down things that We've picked up. We want to repent of them. We want to serve you only. We want to prepare our hearts for you, Lord. Cleansing our hearts of any other idolatrous things, things that are more important to us than you. That is an idol, Lord. So we lay these things down and ask that you would come and you would cleanse, that you would restore that we would recover that which we used to have. And Lord, we know that you've promised this, that where sin abounds, grace abounds more. It outdoes the damage of sin. And so we are grateful, Lord, and we we set our eyes upon you. We set our eyes upon you. We're going to close with this song and,